Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Caged In. I have a very special Caged In conversation for you this week to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the John Woo uh, classic face-off. I'm joined by Michael Kaliri and Mike Werb, the two writers of this, uh, let's just say, it's a masterpiece. It's a goddamn masterpiece. Uh, And this conversation was a lot of fun. Uh, Mike and Michael were happy to kind of go into all aspects of the film, whether it's like how they kind of got together, how long that script kicked about for um, people who could have been in it, their kind of interactions with those people later on down the line, finding out why uh, big name actors might have passed on this kind of opportunity to be in this film, how Nicolas Cage got involved, how John Woo got involved. It's all, uh, yeah, there's so much great stuff in this. We even talk about the kind of new Adam Wingard proposed sequel that uh, is likely to happen. Who knows at this point? Uh, We get to that at the end of the conversation. So do be sure to stick around for that. And um, I want to say up front a massive thank you to Marco Kairis, who got me in touch with uh, Michael and Mike for this. So kind of, yeah. It's kind of a mad story how it kind of all happened. Uh, as a lot of you may know, who kind of listen to the podcast quite frequently or keep up to date on the socials with everything we're doing over here, um, I was featured in a BBC Culture article written by uh, previous guest Anna Bogutskaya. Um, and uh, out of the blue, Marco got in contact with me. It's like, hey, um, I read that article that you're, you were quoted in. Um, yeah, Anna wrote this amazing piece all about Nicolas Cage. Um, and yeah, reached out to me as somebody who's dedicated a, a big chunk of his life to, to looking at the man's career. So yeah, Marco got in touch after that. And then I don't know why, I think I was on a cloud of, of, of confidence and bravado. I kind of said, hey, you know, you know, Mike and Michael, is there any chance you can get me in touch with those guys? Because I'd love to celebrate face off in this kind of big way and I couldn't think of a better way than to speak to these two guys because I've always been I'm always fascinated to speak to writers um, one of my favorite podcasts is 
script to part um hosted by the lovely al horner who i know yeah uh, 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 yeah a vocal supporter of this podcast so if you're listening now hello uh, <laughs> but um yeah i kind of delve back into script apart and that and like listen to that to kind of get get prepped for this but i think yeah i think you're really going to enjoy my conversation with michael cleary and mike Werb. so i'm gonna stop talking and let you enjoy that conversation right now Today I'm joined by both writers of Face Off, celebrating its 25th year, which feels wow. crazy. So I'm joined by Mike Werb and Michael Kaliri. How are you, gentlemen? Doing, doing a okay. Doing yeah, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, doing a lot of press for the 25th <laughs> anniversary. Something we certainly didn't expect 25 years ago. Uh, even the new Academy Museum is screening the film next in a couple of weeks. Amazing. So it's, yeah, how like how does it feel? Like it kind of like with the longevity this film has has had. Obviously, like when, when I don't know, like did you did you feel something when you kind of when it was getting made or like the the script you had? Were you like people are going to be talking about this years to come? No, <laughs> we were like, what? We, First of yeah. us, like, what are we going to actually write? Then it was like, what? Can we actually sell this? Then it was like, what? It sold. What? It's in turnaround. What? Another studio picked it up. What? The third director's on it. What? These two actors are going to be in it. <laughs> what? Is this going to work? Oh, my God. I think it's going to work. And now it's a hit. And 25 years later, we're talking to, to yeah. you about it. Yeah. I have to say, yeah, I'm more, I think, uh, I will say this, in that turnaround period, I was ready to just let it go uh, uh, and just move on with my life. But Mike kept saying, face off is too good. Like we working on something else. And then suddenly out of nowhere, Mike would fall silent and then go, I'd say, what's up? He'd go, face off is too good to be sitting on a shelf. It's too good. And I was like, I ah, come on. Yeah, oh yeah. I remember very well, very well. Because I, I, I remember, I'm, I'm sure I thought I told you this. I was like, I'm at home. I was like, oh God, I wish you'd just let it go. <laughs> but I'm so glad, you know, you didn't, obviously. Um, because I just didn't feel like anyone we had such a terrible experience at Warner Brothers. There really was honestly, I didn't I had I was become so cynical at that time, I didn't think there was any chance we would have a better experience anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And boy, did Paramount uh step up show me the error of my of my ways. So <laughs> Or absolute opposite of I just of, think that the difference is that that uh Warner Brothers basically looked at it as another programmer, mm -hmm. another action piece that they could might be able to get some big action stars. And when it went over to Paramount, it became much more of right. a uh you know, a psychological thriller that was disguised as an action movie. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and I will say this, and I, it's just a theory. I don't. I, I think Mike kind of agrees, but we were very, very, very fortunate that the difference between Warner's and Paramount was Warner's was being run by Sherry Lansing. No, uh, Paramount was. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's a mistake. <laughs> Paramount was being run by Sherry Lansing, and Sherry Lansing came up as a producer. You know, Sherry Lansing was a creative, essentially, who had become 
a very powerful executive. The guys at Warner Brothers were not that. And I think she saw the movie and said, oh, shit, this is like a great opportunity to have two great actors. And, you know, they, she got it immediately, uh -huh. kind of what the appeal was. And then she sent it to Michael Douglas, who had been a longtime friend and colleague. And he was the same as an actor. He looked at it and only saw it as, oh, this is a fucking riot <laughs> for two good actors. So so that that was sort of the I think the ultimate difference between those two experiences is they understood instantly I mean they were still nervous <laughs> obviously <laughs> but they understood instantly how it was supposed to work and what the appeal of it was and uh Warner Brothers never did as Mike said they I just... think that yeah I think the thing is that um you know once they were once those people got involved and Michael Douglas read every draft of the script. And we had done a couple of rewrites, of course, for Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. And Michael sat us down and he was like, what's important to you about this movie? Why did you write this? And he was asking all sorts of questions that writers aren't generally used to being asked by producers. And after the end of that, you know, he's like, don't worry, you know. And John Woo, when he came aboard, it was the same thing. It was all about the characters and their journey. And the action was going to happen anyway. So, um, so it became much more, as I said, of a, uh, you know, a sort of a sci-fi psychological thriller about uh, um, obsession and about, you know, uh, this fight for this family and about, you know, trying to overcome, you know, the agony of the past yeah. and move toward a better future. So, so for people who wouldn't know, like you've obviously mentioned Michael Douglas, how, like what was he doing at Paramount at that time? Obviously, people know him as an actor. Like, could you shed some light as to well, what, what you may know was? or may not know that Michael is an Oscar-winning producer uh -huh. uh, from the seventies, and um, I, I, I what one flew over the cuckoo's nest, I believe. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. He produced that film, um, but. You know, Michael had a, you know, due to, as Mike Cleary said, his relationship with Sherry Lansing, uh, Michael had a producing deal with Steve Ruther, his producing partner um, at Paramount, and they opened their books to him and asked which of these scripts that did he want to produce. David Perman had brought uh, another producer and good friend of ours had brought the script in with Kevin Messick to Paramount. And they opened all these, uh, you know, uh, their portfolio of screenplays. And this was the one Michael decided uh, to produce amazing, amazing. and make it happen. So, yeah, before we get too much into like when the like ball started rolling and the film got made over at Paramount, where was the where did the germ of this idea come from and like kind of how did you guys i don't know yeah what, what was student the, loan mike? debt <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah uh mike i'm happy to start or if you want to go start. ahead okay go ahead. so so um mike and i Wait a second met. now i know why you have your little uh your little backyard house, Petros. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever lives in the main house does not allow you to smoke. This is your uh, man cave, your den, smoking den. Yeah, I don't yes, like to call funny. it a man cave. I like the, I, I call it the the famous shed on the podcast, but it's only me who calls it that. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm oh. hoping that it will, it will catch on with <laughs> okay, the listeners. We're on. with you on the, the <laughs> yeah. same hope. Well, it looks fun right, anyway. Sorry, Michael. 
No, that's okay. So, so a little backstory. Mike and I met in the screenwriting uh, program at UCLA, the master's program at UCLA. This is in the early mid '80s, um, and we were, had a lot of writing classes and we became friends. Uh, mostly because Mike needed a ride. Everything in LA is transactional, so <laughs> we became friends because Mike needed a, a ride. I, we both lived in the Valley. Uh, I, I was taking two buses to get to uh, school and living on a friend's couch. And uh, Michael and I were in the same class, Howard Suber's um, uh, class. And uh, um, <laughs> somebody pointed out Michael Cleary and said, oh, that guy has a car and he lives near you. Yeah. And so I approached. Yes, he did. And um, anyway, so we became, you know, and, and it, for your listeners who don't know about L.A., the idea of taking a bus from the va Valley to UCLA and back, two buses, is like the definition of hell, especially <laughs> back then, especially back then. So anyway, so we became friends and um, and we would read each other's scripts and give each other's notes and kind of do, do the thing that... Uh, is very encouraged at UCLA Film School and become supporters of each other. And um, flash forward a couple of years, um, you know, we had been doing that and being friends. And then around the late 80s uh, was when the kind of the golden, you know, Shane Black sold Lethal Weapon and The Last Boy Scout. And so it became sort of like uh, for a screenwriter, there was this jackpot element suddenly to the business. Um, that was very energizing, of course. And I had sold a script to MGM on my, that I had written on my own. And, you know, and Mike had sold, I think, Machine Gun Kelly. You were working on Machine Gun Kelly at that time, Mike, maybe. Yeah, Mike had gotten Columbia. Very, that's a Still different Still hasn't podcast. gotten made. <laughs> very, but it was, a, it was like a huge thing. And anyway, so we were giving notes to each other on these drafts and trying to be supportive, of, you know, if we could. And we started talking about, hey, you know, the spec market. And um, I think what I think what actually triggered us was a spec called the the Ticking Man. Manny and Cotto. This, Manny Cotto and Brian Hegeland, who went on to to both writers of prominence, who Brian Hegeland went on to win an Oscar for for um, L.A. Confidential. Mm -hmm. But they had they had sort of made a big splash because they had a spec idea called the Ticking Man. And the way they sold that was they sent out a, like an alarm clock to all the studios and with the log line or something. And it was about a guy who had a bomb in him, but a very high concept. And then it was sold that they created some incredible sizzle around it. And of course, sent it out over a weekend and all the studios read it by Monday morning. It was like, we want it. We got to have it. And so it. <laughs> it sort of auctioned into this huge stratosphere of money never got made um um anyway and bruce willis was attached he was at his height anyway so we were like hey you know we're hard working we have ideas let's maybe work together make it you know make the load a little easier to carry while we're doing these other things so it was sort of a side project frankly at first um and uh, we, at that time, and Mike, please feel free to jump in. I, I've told versions of this forever. But at that time, um, the sort of operating principle for these studios for action films was Die Hard. They all wanted the next Die Hard. Yeah. 
die hard on a and, bus like speed yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and we and right. they're all out there now so we went in so our first meeting was about okay we wanted no we wanted to write an action movie because those were the ones selling we liked those movies a lot and we felt that we could do a good one um and what the script i had sold to mgm was sort of an kind of an action movie was it was an action movie um that was a universal soldier kind yeah of it was like a universal soldier type for soldier everyone every writer has one um <laughs> Anyway, um, so we got together at Mike's house in West Hollywood, and we just started talking over a long holiday weekend. I think it was Memorial Day or July 4th or something like that. And um, our sort of the first thing that came up was like, well, we've seen all these diehards. Uh, we haven't seen Die Hard in a prison. So, and I had done some research about Attica and the riot, the famous awful riots in Attica. And we had an idea, well, what if a cop, a good guy, Bruce Willis, goes in undercover as like a mole, and then he ends up getting caught up in this riot, crazy prison riot, and he becomes like this almost a horror movie, and he's trying to survive, and people think he's a criminal, and all this shit. And um, that sort of is what started the conversation, and then it sort of evolved from there. Is that pretty accurate, Mike? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so, so, and we kicked that around. And this, by the way, this took place all over three days. This was like not a long, drawn-out process. We just sat in his room and just gabbed, and gabbed and gabbed. And and um, shortly when after, when did we go that, to Pasadena to see White Heat at that revival theater? It was it by so so. The White Heat entered the conversation because I had actually re remembered it wrong. I was like, oh yeah, you know, the guy in White Heat, the guy goes undercover to to. Uh, uh, Get info from James Cagney. James Cagney, and then they escape, and he's on the run. And I had actually m m remembered it incorrectly, but by coincidence, it was playing around the time at an revival house that we were kind of doing this process. So we, it was shortly after that we went to see it just to see what they did, um, and we realized that you know at a certain point what we had in mind was not what White Heat had in mind. <laughs> um ultimately it's a great movie but it, it it and it is definitely was a inspiration but um we you know we parted ways so anyway so it's so we kicked that around for a while and then mike to had to me the sort of the first really important uh brainstorm which was prisons are depressing <laughs> prison, <laughs> prison riots are depressing uh how about a prison of the future yeah. And I was like, and so when he said that, I was like, oh, that's great. Because for one thing, I felt like that was more certainly in my wheelhouse in fantasy, you know, making shit up was uh -huh. going to be an easier uh, task for me than I, I imagine as a screenwriter as well. That's kind of like you kind of get to invent stuff, right? It's not. Yeah, kind of yeah, exactly. Down it's, in for the me, research it's a little bit more of, exciting. And so yeah, that world kind building. Of, yeah, world, exactly. And so then that kind of generated our next problem, which was, well, okay, so if it's so if it's in the future, how do we plausibly put a guy into a prison, uh, like a police officer who everyone thinks is a criminal, um, but he's not, and then all this shit happens, <laughs> why, why doesn't he just pick up a phone, you know? Yes. Why can't he just... He, first policeman he sees says hey i'm a you know and that and it's like well how the fuck are we going to do that and so <laughs> that that so that really is what kind of engendered the, the the conversation now mike will take over well the problem was that movie fortress then came out mm -hmm. <laughs> do you remember fortress 
Vaguely. Vaguely. Do you even know what it is? Uh, I know the name. I know the title, at least. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It's a Christopher Lambert futuristic uh-huh. prison movie. It's actually quite good. <laughs> it is good. Yeah. So we weren't going to do that. <laughs> right. So then I, I don't know which movie we saw, but it was one of the... Michael and I went to see one of the uh, Die Hard ripoff movies that were still going very strong at the time. Uh-huh. And we were like... Oh my God, like it, none of these movies are diehard. I mean, of course, Speed being, and a few others being great exceptions, but um, where you have, you know, the bad guy doing one arm push ups in, in a hotel yeah. room naked. That's diehard too. P- plotting to take over the world and naked. And we were like, <laughs> oiled down doing a one arm push up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we decided, I think, Michael, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we decided to start talking more about the bad guy than the hero because we were in sort of a rut regarding the hero so we started yeah, talking about the, we started yeah. talking about the bad guy and the more we started talking about it and again at michael's right this took place over a very short period of time we we posed the question to each other which is let's have some balance in this movie let's make the bad guy be just as interesting with just as much screen time as the good guy. And so the more we started talking about that, then it became, well, why can't the bad guy be the good guy? (laughs) Um, And then we had to try and figure out how that was going to work. And we quickly decided we didn't want to do voodoo or or some sort of, uh, some other sort of supernatural personality swap. And uh, I don't know, how did the facial surgery come in, Michael? Well, it was it was sort of balled up in the futuristic aspect of it, too, um, which was good that we had already had already had that kind of impulse um, because we oh, said right. well, there were tons of organ transplants were going on more and increasingly. Right. Right. So we what we tried to do is sort of lean into the medical macabre medical nature of it. And we said, well, it is set in the future. So, so that will help us sell this idea. But, but, but to take a step back, I think what happened was we said, um, so we had the undercover guy going into prison um, to get information from somebody. And at the time, his mission was actually very general. It was, there was not a ticking bomb in the sale draft. Um, It was more general about the, the organ crime organization. And Um, So it was his mentor, I believe. Anyway, so his mentor had come and said, can you go in and do this and crack this one for um, once and for all? And uh, so when he goes in there, so he does agree to have this facial surgery um, that's going to turn him into a criminal. Um, And then it was the mentor who took his face. Oh, okay. Okay. It was his mentor who took his face, and then because his mentor was je- old, old guy, and he was jealous of him, and he had this young gashing. It was like you know, he was like this, uh, you know, he he wanted to take over the wife. He loved the wife, who was yeah, awesome, yeah. and he the, the, there were more kids in the family at that time, and and then we were like, you know, that's weird, kind of weird. It wasn't you know, working. We, yeah, it, it, we actually we probably, figured out early. Uh, Early enough that that w- that was not working. 
Yeah. This, well, well again, the same three well. days. I mean, this this com- this part of the conversation probably took place over 15 minutes, and we finally <laughs> said, well, wait a minute. Why does that villain in the beginning mm-hmm. have to die? Why can't he just be in a coma? And uh, he becomes that guy, and then that guy wakes up and becomes him. And then as soon as we made this, this simple connection that we only needed a mano a mano story, we didn't need all this convolutions, um, that, that's what sort of set the whole thing in, in motion. And, and we broke the, mentor, the structure. It, oh, sorry, Mark. Oh, yeah. So let me just say this. The, the mentor actually is still in the movie. Okay. It is Harv Presnell. It is, is Victor is, Lazaro. Uh, uh, but that character began in, uh, in the very early genesis of it as the actual antagonist. So anyway, sorry. And regarding the surgery, I had a you know sense memory of my aunt so- Sonia uh, when I was a kid. I remember like just being in a you know utter panic. I probably burst into tears the first time she. We were sleeping over my cousin's house and she was going to bed and she goes, well, I'll see you in the morning. I have to go uh, take my face off, which was an expression <laughs> yeah, yeah. and maybe still is for heavily made up women. Yep. Um, yeah. Drag queens, I suppose. But um, but uh, to uh, remove her makeup, but she didn't say it that way. She said she had to take her face yes. off and yes. it was terrifying to me. I must have been yeah. six, seven years old. I didn't know what that meant, but it sounded horrifying. Yeah. And then we, so we kicked around ideas about how the facial swap might work. And we had, I mean, and we went through, I mean, we talked it, nothing under this was written, but uh, we talked like, is it a, is it a surgery? Is it a kind of chemical thing? They can shoot you up and change it from within is it a mask you can take off and put over? I mean, we 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 really kind of struggled, uh, at, well, struggled, but we de- it definitely took some effort to kind of figure out exactly how to thread that needle. For for a time in several drafts, there was it it sort of had it was sort of a ticking clock, like the face wasn't uh-huh. going to stay on, or they well, had to. That's but that was um, Darkman though. When did Darkman come out? That was. That was ninety. That was ninety something, two or three. But remember, we had drafts like like people. He was getting pumped. We talked about around all this stuff. Like, does the face come off? Is there? Does he only have a certain amount of time to do the mission before it's stuck to his face permanently? Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. like a lot of stuff that. Dark really Man was nineteen ninety. Ninety ninety. Okay. And that's that when we that started. We wrote this in ninety. Yeah. Yeah, we did. We did. And we did, we didn't want to do Dark Man. I mean, we enjoyed yeah. the movie and we actually wrote a sequel to Dark Man. But we, we didn't want to make that kind of I mean, that was like an opera, you know, fan of the opera. We we were not looking to do that. We or make a superhero. We were not looking to do that. So so how long were you kind of like kicking the script around for before like you kind of got interest from was it initially Warner Brothers or yeah, you said it was nineteen ninety, like when did you te- like Warner Brothers get involved with uh, with the film? Well, we broke the story on you know typically with screenwriters on scene cards in about fifteen days, mm-hmm. and uh, and then we wrote a draft, and uh, you know we initially had pitched it to our um, we pitched it to our agents at William Morris who just 
I, mean, I don't know if we were laughed out of the room, but it sounded ridiculous to them. But at that point, Michael and I were so deep into it. We thought, well, it is hard. It, it's hard to pitch that story and make a sale. So yeah. we just plowed ahead and wrote it. And once yeah, we wrote I mean, it, uh, the William Morris got very interested in it. <laughs> uh, and, you know, as Michael said, we first started meeting the summer of 1990. And then uh, Michael will tell you what happened when the script was ready to go out uh, yeah. in January of 91. Yeah. So we met. Uh, so we did the draft. We worked on it all summer um, and we actually finished a draft like probably late summer, early fall, got some notes from the agency or maybe some other people. We made some changes. Um, the climax is very different from, there are aspects from the original draft that are not in the movie mm -hmm. finally, in terms of the, the ultimate story and stuff like that, but but the characters are the, all the same, completely the and same. And basically the structure. Yeah, basically the structure. So um, anyway, so, uh, so we went and met with Mike's agency. It was leading artist, actually. They were then absorbed into or William Morris. Oh, right. right. That's right. And uh, we had a meeting with them. And uh, they said, oh, this is great. This is like November, okay, of 90. They're like, this is great. We really think we can do well with this. Sell it, auction. They were going to do the whole big spec, you know, thing. <laughs> but it's too late in the year now. We can't do anything between, you know, around Nobody now. reads between Thanksgiving and between New Year's. And New Year's. Nobody reads anyway. <laughs> but but uh, they were like, so January, we're going to take this out, hit the ground running in January really hard. January 17th, which I remember. I think it was 17th because that's my 16th. mom's birthday. 16th. Okay, 16th. Or 15th. Yeah, it was somewhere there. Whatever that. So by sheer coincidence, I had been... Uh, uh, I was a single guy, spent a lot of time as a writer in my apartment watching TV and watching the news. Uh -huh. This is pre pre-internet. And I happened to know that that particular day in January was the day that George Herbert Walker Bush had promised to start the first Gulf War <laughs> if the Iraqi army had not did not vacate Kuwait. And so I said to Mike, it's the first it's the first war in history that had a start date <laughs> announced ahead of time. And so we brought that up. We said, guys, that, you know, are you sure that's like a good time? And the agents were very dismissed. They're young guys. They were like, oh, no one in Hollywood cares about politics. Oh, it's Jan Michael. It was January 16th. 16th. Okay. Okay. Because I remember going to my mother's birthday the next day in such a shitty mood. But um, anyway, so we were like, okay, you guys are the experts, you know? And January 16th rolls around. It went out that weekend. And January 16th rolls around. And, of course, the war does start. And we're, we're sitting by the phone that Monday morning, like, expecting to hear, cha-ching, hey, your million dollars is on the way, you know? Bye-bye <laughs> student loans. Yeah. And bye-bye uh, one-bedroom crappy apartment. And nothing. You were lucky nothing, <laughs> to have one bedroom. Yeah. Nothing happened. And um, we finally called them like that afternoon or something and said, hey, you know, is anything going on with the, we expected to hear something. And the agent, the same agent goes, are you fucking out of your mind? This country's <laughs> at war. My best friend is a tank commander in Iraq right now. We're, the agency's shutting down early. 
you know, like it was fucking Pearl Harbor or something. <laughs> we were, and we were like, we were like looking at each other, like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> and and what had happened was, which we, of course we had warned them. We had warned them, and what had just happened was we really missed our shot um, because there was the next week or so was unbelievably chaotic. It was impossible to get a hold of people. You know, under you know your country's at war. Understandably, I mean, there's larger issues at stake. Um, but that's not the time to try to sell a spec script for a million dollars. Um, so that's my memory of that week. Anyway, I think eventually we did get a nibble, of course, um, a young executive at Joel Silver's company, Kevin Messick, who's gone on to be very accomplished producer and uh, Oscar nominated this year. Yeah. Yeah. He ran, uh, Will Ferrell's company forever. And I, I think he's with Andy McKay now, but, um, yeah. Still. Adam. Yeah. Anyway, he read it. Thank God he re- found it. And he read it. He was a jo- young, young executive, Joel Silver. And he sh- sent it up, you know, with a great recommendation. He became our biggest champion. And they somehow managed, you know, Joel Silver at that time was a massive producer, yeah. of course. Lethal Weapon and Die Hard and a million, million, you know, a million movies. And he had a huge deal at Warner, output deal at Warner's. And you know, Warner Brothers was very, just generally very motivated to buy the shit that he wanted to make uh-huh. because he had a huge, anyway, he had a huge development budget and all this other stuff. And so they, the Warner Brothers was not that enthusiastic, but they came, apparently came back to the R agents and said, well, Joel wants this for some reason, and um, they're <laughs> going to dig into their, so we'll get, we'll take it as an option, but we're not, you know, it's got to be very inexpensive. Mm-hmm. And so I think it, you know, relative to what everyone was hoping. And so I think the final number was $105,000. 125. Uh, 125. Okay. For an option and two re- two rewrites and three polishes or whatever. 18 month kinda, option. It was 18, 18 month option. Which between uh, our agents, our lawyers, our state and federal tax and splitting it 50 50 uh, believe me did not cover our students <laughs> well, well it, it was 30 it was 30 about 25 to thirty thousand dollars in pocket over 18 months yeah. spread over 18 months so figure figure that two grand a month basically yeah. i guess or less anyway hey um, by world standards it's a shit ton of money but yeah, when you're when you're that deep in debt as I was. Yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing was, and this is a rare thing. I will say this for a writer. Maybe it's because I was working with Mike. I probably was. It probably was. I don't. I really believed in it. Yeah. Like I really thought this this is actually really good. Like that's not and it's something I'd ever ever said before about anything I ever wrote. <laughs> um. And uh, so I thought this is this is you know this is going to open the door finally at last you know for for in a real way. Um, but it's sort of like Lang, we, you know, we went over to, you know, so anyway, so that's what happened. We went over to Silver Pictures and got notes, and it was obvious that as much as the younger executives, not just Kevin, but other people, loved the script and thought it was great, it was going to be, it was going to be hard to get the attention of the upper execs, um, because they had so many projects into active development, and they, you know, it really does become, uh, 
uh, like a lifeboat situation sometimes at the certainly back then when when the budgets were so much bigger for this kind of stuff, development things, because Joel Silver probably had 50 projects. Yeah. Like every week he was probably buying something. And there's only so many executives and only so many resources. And, you know, a lot of stuff gets tossed out along the way. If if it feels like it's going to be, you know, it's path of least resistance uh-huh. in those in those offices. Right. So very rarely are you going to find someone who's going to push a big rock up a hill if they can get, you know, something that may be not as interesting, but it's castable or yes, whatever. Exactly. So anyway, and there wasn't a lot of support at Warner's. Uh, and Mike will tell you about our hilarious meetings uh, with the guys at Warner Brothers. There were creative differences, I guess, is the, <laughs> the you know, irreconcilable. I take that back. Excuse me for one second, Mike. I take that back. There was one smart guy at Warner Brothers named Bob Brassel. And Bob was smart and Bob had good notes. Okay, that was it. <laughs> well, anyway, we uh, we had meetings. We did a draft. They were much more... I mean, the, the huge difference between, I think, our experience at Paramount with the executives at Paramount, like John Goldwyn and, you know, um, and the executives at Warner's and our producer at Warner's, they were just, to them, I think it was just an, you know, kind of a cool sci-fi-ish action programmer. Mm -hmm. And um, so there was never very little discussion about the character, except when it came to the scene the particular scene where um, the bad guy, where Sean Archer, now in the guise of the hero, is living in the house Castor of... Troy. What? Yeah, Castor is in the guise. You yeah, sorry, Castor yeah, Troy yeah, 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 is yeah. in the guise of <laughs> Sean Archer. Even I get it mixed up. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, there's this the very uncomfortable and, uh, you know, scene where he seduces and essentially rapes the wife mm-hmm. impersonating the, her husband and to us that was a, a very very crucial plot point in the movie because if he fools her yeah. then the audience is not just horrified and riveted but they're afraid he's going to get away with anything yes well they didn't want that scene at Warner Brothers. It made them very, very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Which it and should. So, <laughs> the whole point. So we had this big meeting about it, and even oddly, Mel Gibson got involved at some point when oh, we right. ended up waiting for jo- both of us, waiting for three of us, waiting for Joel Silver <laughs> signed by some. I don't know if we were double booked or something. Mel, we Mel was aware of the script, or we and we told him what the problem was, and he's like, "That's ridiculous." He's got to fuck, fuck the wife. <laughs> I'm sorry, I stepped on your line. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. he's like, but he was looking at it as a director and a producer. He goes, "Look, if he, what I just said is what Mel said. If he doesn't fool her, yeah, then." So anyway, this meeting at Warner Brothers over this one thing went on and on. About, uh, about look, um, why doesn't she know that's not her husband? Mm-hmm. Uh, can't what about the penis size? 
it's can't be the same that did you didn't do surgery on that and we're like we we covered that in this scene that uh you know and well she and and we changed the the rape scene so it took place in the shower and then we added that moment where he's reading his the wife's diary where they haven't made love in months or weeks or whatever it was and so and that he's not spontaneous there's no spontaneity in their life so he's read that so he takes her she's in the shower he enters fully dressed into the shower well they they didn't buy that either they said well she'd smell the difference <laughs> to which our response was it's not a john waters film there's no scratch and sniff cards being handed out to the audience. The audience can't smell. I think Michael added at that point, maybe he's soaping her up with Irish spring. <laughs> that would kill anything. Um, and I think it's, so it, it speaks then to the theme. It devolved of- to the finale. Uh, the, the denouement of this is... Um, Finally, I referenced two or three Shakespeare plays where, you know, mostly comedies where somebody slips into bed with somebody else under the cover of darkness and they're completely unaware of of uh, who they actually were in in with. Yeah. And um, so one of the executives taps the script and says, I got news for you, Werb. This is hardly Shakespeare. <laughs> That's gonna say it predates it predates even that. It's like, it was like Greek mythology, it's like leader and the swan too. of like Zeus. Right. Like Zeus yeah. constantly throughout uh his, like throughout Greek mythology yeah. is kind of the guise of whoever he wants to go around basically taking advantage of women. And I think I I think that kind of aspect of the film, I say this as somebody who's watched it multiple times really slight speaks to one of the themes that i get from it is that kind of that i don't know that it, yeah it, it compounds that drive that he's had all that time and the kind of the the way that he's left his family to the wayside and it's yes like, exactly and and right. it's, it's almost something that she's been longing and it, it creates that te- it creates yeah it creates massive tension do you know what i mean that obviously there's a thing that she could have enjoy the, the, the just the fear that like and i guess it's a fear for a lot of men as well that just i don't know your partner could find joy in somebody else and right. that is kind of like realized in that kind of moment of like and when it's revealed later when she kind of tells sean in the guise of caster troy that that did happen well, one yeah. of the things one of the things yeah. that we talked about and nick's great in that scene by yes, the way yeah Fantastic. One of the things we talked about was that that um, they're better people as the opposite person. Yes. That yeah. That Caster Troy is a more attentive husband, and uh, and uh, you know a father who listens to his daughter and helps her out, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know. Anyway, that was that after that Shakespeare retort, I it's the only meeting and I've ever I literally and these are all the talking uh, top executives at Warner Brothers, poor Michael Cleary. I just got up and walked out of the room and I didn't come back. <laughs> and it was like dead silence. And and you may not be able to tell, but I have 
like social anxiety like and i was completely freaked out to be in the presence of all these fancy people like i felt like dirt shit on the bottom of a shoe already and mike leaves and there's like this day they're all looking at me and one of them said was that a walkout was that a walkout and i was like uh i I, I think he just went to the restroom. <laughs> like, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know I never came back. I, don't, I couldn't I don't take it anymore. Yeah, yeah. I just couldn't. So, so I, I, I'm fascinated because in the gestation of this film kind of being written to when it got made, they're like... Uh, the, the face of action cinema had kind of changed like somewhat. Mm -hmm. Obviously, like you said, like Die Hard... And I feel like Die Hard is kind of the the first point of the kind of new action movie we would see throughout the 90s because before we get to that point, it is very much like bustly kind of... Uh, yeah, uh, Commando. Yeah, it's Commando. It's it's oiled right. up men. It's Rambo. It's, it's, it is Sylvester Stallone. It is Arnold Schwarzenegger. And so, like, <laughs> how was it for you guys, like... Because I know that you've said elsewhere that those two were the kind of the people you had in mind, right, when you kind of wrote this script. Is is that correct? Well, we didn't really write it with them in mind, particularly. Uh -huh. I think what we wanted, at least I can speak for myself. I, you know, so much of the movie, first of all, that's when the movie was very far out there. It was very futuristic. Uh -huh. The world was crazily futuristic. So there was an aspect of it that was a little like the fifth, even more than the fifth element, uh -huh. you know, it was yeah. like nuts. Um, and so I like the idea that, you know, the movie only works if the actors, the people playing those roles have established personas, enough of established persona that they can riff on the other person. And so when, if you think of Stallone playing Schwarzenegger and Schwarzenegger playing Stallone, well, they, at that point, they already had you know, I'll be back and all that shit, you know, and um, it'd be, you know, it's so what pops to mind is, oh, it'd be funny to have Arnold say, or Sly say, I'll be back. And, you know, when they've switched places and also the idea that, that it was going to make a hundred million dollars its opening weekend, <laughs> which was my grand, my grand fantasy was going to require those two guys to be in it. If it had any chance of doing that. So, so, um, but later on, they both, they both circled it later on. We can talk about that later on. If yeah. interestingly enough, yeah, they both ha di came at it from different points of view, but, um, but, but very quickly sort of like, that was just sort of like pie in the sky. I mean, we never kind of really thought that would ever, it would cost you. In fact, I floated it by Steve Ruther once after it was at Paramount. I said, yeah, you know, um, we are of course going this whole other way, but I said, yeah, originally, you know, my great fantasy was it was Stallone, and Schwarzenegger, and like a t classic, typical producer, God rest his soul, Steve Ruth, he went, oh my God, who could pay those guys? You couldn't, pay, you couldn't make that movie. You know how much that movie would cost just to pay them alone? Well, guess what they paid the other two. Yeah, so anyway, but uh, you have to give the whole goddamn movie away. Thought I was the stupidest idea you ever heard. So what, anyway. what happened after that walkout? Like, what was the kind of, were there ramifications from that? They dropped. They drop. Thank God. Oh. It, maybe maybe it helped. <laughs> yeah. Eighteen months lapsed. Pretty soon thereafter, and they could have bought out the script for I think twenty five thousand dollars in perpetuity. They didn't. Wow. Shockingly. So Michael and I 
decided to treat ourselves to a very fancy uh, sushi meal that night to celebrate the fact that we'd gotten the rights back. We didn't know what was, but, um, but we went to Matsuhisa mm -hmm. in West Hollywood, which is a Nobu restaurant, right, Michael? Yeah, yeah. Nobu yeah. restaurant. And, um, and, a real and scene. so, you know, look, it's not like we had money at that point, but we were decided to splurge. It was going to happen. And to our utter shock and horror, Joel Silver was eating there that night. Yeah, it was that kind of spot. <laughs> Fortunately, we had so little interaction with him that I don't think he knew what we looked like. No. And so, um, but we did request a table that was pretty far away from him. <laughs> and, um, and so what we didn't know, what was going on behind the scenes were, not only were we tracking the, op, the lapse of the option date of 18 months, but three executives had left either Warner Brothers or Joel Silver's company. They were all at three different studios now. One was at Paramount, one was working for David Permit, which is Kevin Messick, and the other I think was at New Line or somewhere. Uh, and all three of them, all three of those studios, the next day called our agents and wanted the script. Amazing. And so suddenly there was an actual real bidding war for it. <laughs> yeah. So we got to sell it twice and it ended up in the right place. Amazing. What was it that like made you guys go with Paramount? Obviously, like uh, at the moment <laughs> I've been. I've been watching the the offer, so I'm ve I, I feel like I'm very much in. Oh the, yeah, yeah, the I'm very world much of Paramount. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, my well, first of all, we 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 optioned it to David. So Kevin Messick, who we mentioned before, had worked for Joel, was now working for his producer David Berman, who's an independent producer uh -huh. and uh, very you know very successful, still out there. Um, so Ke so David moved very aggressively. To option it from us directly without a studio attached. I think he, you know, he's another one of those showman type who just saw the potential in it. Oh, and right, so he yeah. optioned it from us directly. And then it was David who then shopped it around, I believe. And Dave, you know, and we got there was interest at not Warner's, but other places. But Paramount was incredibly uh motivated. Aggressive aggressive to take it off the market. Like, and in fact, I remember Mike's agent called us, Pat Dollard and said, I just spoke to Sherry Lansing, who is the chairman of chairwoman of the company. And she said, she, you know, she read the script. She loves the script. She wants the script. And we told her, we, I told her, he took credit for it anyway, probably Mike Simpson, but he said, we told her, this is a premium buy. This is not going to be a, you know, do you a favor. And she said, no problem. So they were, so they were from the, I mean, and that's also a big part of the story that from the very beginning that it went to Paramount, that Sherry Lansing read it, there was always a, the opposite of Warner's. There was always high level support for it. If it, it, it ended up taking a few years, that was fine. They, they, there was always interest in making this thing work the right way. And um, so, yeah, so that started a whole other brilliant chapter, uh, to the to the odyssey i think that's right mike please correct me if i'm you remember i think that is right and you know kevin had left uh silver i guess and or was it warner's but silver uh, silver 
yeah. went to work for David Permit. And I think, wasn't I writing, I was writing the mask at, at New Line where David and Kevin were producing another film. That's right. Is that right? They, yes, that's correct. Or they were trying to get it going. It was uh, Julia Estrada, or I forget the name of it, because they were very frustrated with New Line. Oh, right. That's right. Yeah. So, so what, like, I'm trying to get the, the timeline of all this figured out is when was Nick's name first kicked about? Was that, was that, was that early or was that kind of later in the process? No, it was after, it was after uh, John Woo was aboard and, uh, and uh, we were going out to cast and uh, Johnny Depp was shooting Nick of Time for Paramount, which they expected to be, you know, a huge mm-hmm. hit. And, um, oh, sorry, go ahead, Michael. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just want to interrupt. There, one, one correction Please. there. It was before John, it, because Marco. So after Rob Cohen was attached, and then he he left to do Braveheart, and the, I'm not for Dragonheart. Dragonheart, <laughs> very different. <movie. laughs> and then they found this guy Marco Brambia, who was a young kind of commercial director. He had one movie, which was weirdly Demolition Man. <laughs> um, but uh, so we met with Marco, and Marco got the job. Because at this point, I think they were getting a little nervous, like, how the fuck is this going to work? They were very, had been very high on Rob Cohen. And Marco came in and said, I want to do this younger, which is like the magic word. Um, and so that's when the Johnny Depp of it all began. So so Marco tried to cast Johnny Depp. Um, and Mike will tell you about that, that those shenanigans there. But in the meantime, we'd heard that Nick Cage, we got a call from somebody, I forget, who said, well, Nick Cage wants to do it. Was his agent uh, uh, at uh, ICM? What, what, yeah, and we were like, "Oh my God, that's fantastic!" This is before leaving Las Vegas and everything wow. like. But we were like, "Yes, that's the right idea." And they said, "Well, Nick was just in a Paramount movie, Kiss of Death remake, that didn't do very well, so they're not that high on him. They don't really want him. They, they'll they might take him if Johnny Depp says he'll, says he'll do it." Mm-hmm. Well, they were going to take him, although we were worried about the height difference. Yeah, we were like, "That's a terrible match." <laughs> Although they're friends and everything, um, so yeah, so they but so then began the, this sort of uh, uh, um, sort of slog to get Johnny Depp. At that time, Johnny had Depp had made you know a lot of movies, but they were mostly like Edward Scissorhands and yeah. Tim Burton type things. So at Paramount, they were trying to kind of test the waters about whether he could be kind of converted into a move like a conventional movie star. Um, and uh, like I guess it happened with Keanu. Uh, yeah, on I guess, Speed. I guess it's around yeah. that time that they kind of yeah, it's around that time. And so they put him in a movie called yeah. called Nick of Time, which was a uh, like a you know fast paced thriller that John Badham directed uh, with Christopher Walken. Anyway, uh, that was for Paramount, and they really thought it was going to do great, and it and it did not do great, which was good for us. But I'm sorry, go on, Mike. Uh, where was I? Oh, uh, Michael Douglas trying to get Johnny. Oh, yeah. So Michael Douglas was stalking Johnny Depp <laughs> on the set of Nick of Time and probably outside his house because, you know, he's not only an amazing actor and incredibly bright person and great <laughs> with development, great producer, just, you know, basically stalking Johnny Depp. And then finally, after weeks and weeks of trying to get him, um, he passed. What we had heard two different stories. We have no idea whether either of them 
are true, but one was that um, he didn't like the title. Mm-hmm. And so he passed. And the other was that he liked the title, but then he read the script and found out it wasn't about hockey. So he... <laughs> and that was it. He read half of it. He, 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 he only read half of it because he realized it wasn't about hockey. So, so, so that was a bit of a, I mean, that was a blow in some ways, but the main blow was shit. Now Nick Cage might not be in it. Mm-hmm. Um, from, from our so, point of view. So as it turns out, Marco. Well, wait, back up one second, yeah. because oh, one yeah. of the things when we were doing rewrites, one of the things that Michael Douglas kept emphasizing to us is this. He goes, after he took us aside, we had just the three of us in the room and he's talking about character and asking us all those questions about why we wrote this in the first place. And what is it really about? Deep down, strip away the action, futuristic stuff, all that stuff. He said, look, putting on my actor hat now, I can tell you that people, actors, if they're playing two different roles, they're generally, it's almost exclusively good and evil identical twins. Mm -hmm. You guys have an opportunity to to not do that. What you have here is a psychological thriller disguised as an action film. If you do your rewrites with that in mind, you're going to get actors who can do action, not action stars mm-hmm. who might be able to act. Yes. And that was much more important because, you know, later on, you know, we had a we you know, we, we did we had a couple of projects with uh, with Schwarzenegger, who, by the way, is brilliant, like such a smart, keen intellect. And, you know, very aware of his, uh, you know, his skill set. When we met with him, we didn't even, you know, the movie had gotten made already. We were working on, I think, what was it? Was the Andy Davis film, Michael? Well, yeah, Collateral Damage. We, we don't have a credit on that, but we were doing uh, some pr- uh, uh, pre-production work, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I guess, uh, uh, you know, uh, pol- script polishing. Um, Arnold took us aside. He goes, oh, you know, we never talked about the face-off thing. We're like, oh, well, we heard you passed because Maria didn't like, thought the script idea was ridiculous. And he laughed. He just goes, oh, well, you know, she doesn't make all the decisions in my in my <laughs> life or my career. But no, no, that's not true. And he, I mean, you never see this from somebody. I mean, you would imagine that Schwarzenegger would have a big ego. That was not apparent to us. Very humble, mm-hmm. very humble. He looked kind of looked down at his shoes. He was he made, first of all he made his lunch, then he, he's take, walking us out to our car, and he just says, you know, reading that script, and he loved it. Um, reading that script with my accent and what I can do as an actor, I didn't see how I could take uh, do both roles. Oh wow, we were blown away by that. Yeah, really we got in the car you know, whatever, hugs, goodbyes. We got in the car, drove away, and we were like, did that just happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I cannot imagine, and you have to keep in mind at this time, How I mean, of course, he's the biggest star in the world. We're yeah. like, he just said that? Wow. What a good person. Yeah. I, I mean, what a smart, you know, I don't know. I we think, love yeah, him. I, th- I think him and Stallone are, are, are very, like, 
underestimated in kind of their intelligence levels and like oh uh, without without a doubt their intellect because yeah. i don't know i think yeah sylvester stallone it's like people think he is the characters he plays and it's like the guy wrote rocky yeah, yeah exactly he's like, he's like the guy the guy knows what he's doing and he yeah. won't let you forget it <laughs> <laughs> no uh, we we've never met uh mr stallone so i have no comment on him but everything i've heard is what you said yeah, yeah, yeah. he he there was a bit of overlap with stallone and face off uh we went in oh, we were God. in the office one day and uh steve Ruther, oh, the producer says oh by the way uh sherry called head of the studio Apparently, Sly wants to do wants to be in the movie, and uh, so you know Sherry's like, "Yeah, we're going in July, whatever. We're going in July with Sly." And Ruther said, "No, we're not. We're not going to go with Sly uh, because Sly wanted to be in it, but he wanted to play it as twins." Oh, okay. He wanted to play it as twins. <laughs> and by the way, I have to do have to preface by saying this. You know, Sly has agents. Sly has representatives. Their whole job is to know what's out in the business. We, uh, pardon me, we honestly don't know if Sly knew anything about this project. It could just have been yes. his agent calling Cherry and saying, hey, face off, Sly wants to do it. Make a deal, you know, and then they worry, then they worry about telling Sly. So I honestly don't know if Sly ever read it, but that was pretty funny about the <laughs> But early on, before we cast, we did tell Michael Douglas, we was like, why don't you and Harrison Ford do it? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. There was a moment when we were in a development meeting and Michael did the, some of the dialogue, like he got into character and did the dialogue to make a point about something. And that was the first time we'd ever seen it acted. It was before the movie. Yes, shot. it was Michael Douglas. But, You're right. Yeah. Man. And we were, we were just like, ah, uh, you know, it's freaking <laughs> Michael Douglas. Yeah. Uh, he was off doing about to do the game oh, wow. and he was in there doing the characters and he was like, it was only like 30 seconds, but it was fucking mind blowing to see <laughs> that. I wish we, there would have been a way to record it cause it was awesome. But yeah. 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 Actually at that point, cause I think he was moving between both roles. Yeah. It was a little more than 30 seconds, but yeah, um, maybe we were like, wow, this might work. And that's when we said, why don't you be in the movie? yeah he just laughed so when when did when did john woo like what's the kind of yeah what was the oh whose idea okay. was john woo like was that was that had, had you guys right, kind of... you want to tell this well-trod tale <laughs> okay so so um it was what can i say it was destiny it was divine providence uh there's no other way to put it so when we wrote the script and we was at warner brothers and we were going about our lives. Uh, none of it. Hong Kong cinema was still sort of a glimmer in Hollywood's eye. Mm -hmm. uh, people knew about Jackie Chan, maybe. But the local revival houses had a Hong Kong act film festival every year. And they showed Chinese ghost story and all this stuff. And so it was starting to permeate a little bit. And we, when we were working, I remember when we were working on Dark Man, the Dark Man movie, uh sam raimi's company was making hercules and they and they had the a tv a, show a tv show and they had a room that was full of videotapes and it was all bootlegs from hong kong cinema <laughs> movies all the the action movies everything and they were they would mine those tapes they would find gags like fighting 
gags and they would just take it and put it in a Hercules show. <laughs> and they would put that in a script. They, oh, yeah, there's the staff fight from A Better Tomorrow or whatever. So anyway, so um, so quite apart from that, uh, one night, Mike and I go to the New Beverly Theater, which is a revival house, and we're, I don't know, we were At just went to the movies. Quentin Tarantino's theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was before it. he owned it. And while oh, we're, right, I, don't, right. I don't even remember what we went to see, but before we went to see it, there was a trailer for this like insane shoot 'em up with like guys flying left and right out of the sky and doves and guns and everything. It was like, what the fuck was that? It, and it was the killer. It was a trailer for the killer, the John Woo movie. So we were like, well, we got to see that. That looks awesome. So the following week, we went, or whenever it came, at, came to the theater, we went to see the killer, the whole thing. And and at the end of it, we were like, oh, my God, Face Off is a John Woo movie. Now, this is probably at some time, like, when it was in, I don't know if it was at Paramount yet or who, what director was attached or anything like that. We were like, this is a fucking John Woo movie. We never even heard of him. So we, we Mike went, to, Mike was at William Morris at this point, and he, the next day we call William Morris, and we say, hey, Mike says to his agent, hey, um, we saw this movie last night called The Killer, and we think there's this guy named John Wu, who's Chinese, who, you know, for what it's worth, would be like like the perfect person. And they went, there's like this long pause, and the agent goes, we just signed him. Ah, oh, amazing. amazing. We were like, what? <laughs> and, and we uh, met him. The first time we shook his hand was at the Dark Box Man. Lot. No, it was at the dark. It was no the Hard Target premiere. That so because Sam Raimi was making Hard Target, they were producing right. Hard Target. Right, that's we right. Met Sam, we met John just to shake his hand because we knew Sam Raimi, yeah. and then later on, Mike's agents set up a general meeting with John, and he was on the Fox lot uh, editing Broken Arrow. And um, at this point, Marco Brambilla was on Face Off, so it was like there was no way this was ever going to happen. And we met, we, 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 so we, you know, we, of course we wanted to meet him. We have general and we went over to the lot and we met him. And the first, you know, um, now is that when he said about the kid? No, maybe that was later. No, that was uh, later. Anyway, so we went in and he said, oh, you know, John doesn't speak English very much, although he understands it perfectly. Kind of like if he doesn't want to hear what you're saying, he can kind of pretend he doesn't <laughs> understand. But, but, uh, but he was like, I just want you to know. Face Off is the best action script I've ever read. And we were like, well, why don't you direct it? And he looked at his partner, Terrence Chang, because, you know, Hong Kong, it was like he just rolled from movie to movie, uh, you know. And he looked at Terrence Chang like, yeah, why can't I direct it? Yeah, and that's like, right. You know, why can't I direct it? It's like, well, you still, you know, he had all these other projects that they were, Warner, you know, William Morris was hooking him up with left and right. And anyway, Face Off was essentially taken at that time i mean it wasn't available um so anyway so then the whole johnny depp thing happened and marco doing drafts for marco and when johnny depp passed it was the it was the greatest thing that it, one of the great things that had to go wrong for the movie to turn out right marco took us to lunch um and said look guys i'm gonna be off the movie um you know i i, I don't want to try to cast I, I couldn't cast it basically i mean that was the bottom line he said, also, but, privately, Michael and I were very against going younger. 
Yeah, very against. Because the very script, against. the stakes were about the family, the mm-hmm. loss of this kid and all that, and yeah. ignoring the surviving child and the wife. Yeah. It wouldn't it, have been it, the same film. It's a movie about two old war horses yeah. going at each other, you know, two old stags going at each other for the last time. I mean, that's what the movie's really about, you know. In my, in my, you know, yeah. not opinion. old, just aging. Yeah, but like, yeah. Um, anyway, so not young. It's not a young man's thing. Uh-huh. Anyway, so um, so while we're sitting there having lunch, he was very, you know, Mark is a super nice guy, but he says, but I think you guys are going to be very happy, he says, kind of cryptically. Um, and then, like, the next day, they, we, you know, we went, actually, it wasn't even the next day, it was after lunch, because we we, he'd given us the news that he was off the movie. So we went back and called Steve Ruther, and the said, what's the story? We just lost our director. He, they, and they are like, guys. Just stand by. Hang on. It's all going to be good. <laughs> and then, like, a few days later, the announcement came out that John was attached. Amazing. And um, immediately, uh, they were going to go out to cast. And um, that was the other thing that happened. John Travolta had been interested, but he had taken another movie, weirdly called The Double, which was <laughs> shooting in Europe. It was a Polanski movie. And John Travolta had gone over there. The story they told us was John Travolta had gone over there. So he was out. And he went over there and just only to to start shooting, only to discover the movie had been completely rewritten. And he hadn't approved any of that, so he quit. And came back, and he now was available. So I think I'm remembering the order right, Mike. Is that correct? It is how... I'm not sure if it's accurate, but it's also how I remember it. Right. And so Nick came on after that, because they... they, uh, they hilariously held off on Nick, and then Nick won his Oscar. Yeah, imagine. And then they still had to pay him. They were pissed. They had to. <laughs> they were going to hire him, but they had now going to have to pay him more money. Yeah, because I, I can imagine. Like, that's, I don't know. Like when that. Well, yeah, when Nick's name was first floated about, like he'd done some really great stuff. Like uh, a film, a film I absolutely love, and I think it's like an undersung Nicolas Cage film is the John Dahl film, uh, Red Rock. Oh, West. it's great. I, I I absolutely love it. Yeah, like, um, yeah. And it's like oh, if you if you if you need a leading man like that, and even before then, like do you know what I mean, you got you got uh, uh, raising Arizona. You got yeah, um, yeah, you, yeah. Got, you got Moonstruck. Great like, classics. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. And and the uh, was it Red Rock West? I mean, that's a great. I love movie. it. Yep. Yep. Fantastic movie. Yeah. You won't get an argument from us. We wanted Nick from the get-go. As <laughs> soon as we heard he was interested, we wanted him in the movie for sure. Um, so, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it all sort of started to kind of, the universe, all the planets lined up or something um, because it all started to fall in place, you know. So how, like, when, when John got involved, how quickly did the ball start rolling to, like, get to shooting, like? Was it was it quite quickly after that? Was it like did it fall into place like Nick's on board, John's on board, let's get this train rolling? Um well it was like early ninety six, I think, when all that started to happen. Um and Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean it did it I mean, yeah, it did it did the train did start to roll. I mean, there were always hiccups and bumps about money and this and that and where there you know, the script was set in different places over the years. Um, and the kind of finally the word came down that they were going to shoot it here in L.A., mm-hmm. um, which did impact. Yeah. Did the, impact. Initial, the initial location was San Francisco because we had a whole sequence underwater 
when the BART train goes under the uh, under in under the bay from Oakland or San Francisco to Oakland or or the the other direction. Uh, yeah, and so then we said it DC. And then for Rob Cohn, we said it in DC, didn't we, Michael? Yeah, I think it was in DC. There was a version in Chicago. Uh, there was a generic version, which um, meant Toronto. Yeah, because they were <laughs> they were looking at Toronto. Um, yeah, there were different there were different versions. Yeah, where let's stuck. not forget Nick Cage and Birdie also. Oh, oh God, fantastic! Yeah, 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 yeah. The great Alan Parker. Yeah. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So you guys, like, for, yeah, for, for, from my research, you guys were actually on set for the, for the making of this movie. Is that, that Every day but one. That, yeah. That's kind of unheard of, right? That's not that's not usually done in Hollywood. No, not no. Usually, so, the directors don't want the writers on set unless they've co-written it with somebody, their producing partner, or something. Yeah, the writer's a little. The, the writer becomes an inconvenient sort of presence in a lot of movies because what the writer has the potential to do is like blow up the confidence of what's going on and what they and sort of like at that point once you start production they really it's it's a catastrophe to stop mm -hmm. so they really don't want someone in the mix to say you know this is not working or, or they're going off book yeah. they're going That's not you know, the line we wrote 
Yeah, they, to slow it down or potentially uh, stall it, they don't want that that person on the set. Um, John didn't care about any of that, and uh, <laughs> particularly, and we had at that point we had worked with John developing it for his his version, uh -huh. um, and we had a very, of course we worshipped him from the very beginning, and then when we came in for the first development meeting, Mike will tell you how we how our bond was sealed. Well, the first development meeting we had with him was uh, it was very interesting, and it continued on the for months of of uh, going to Korean barbecue with John, or having yeah. him cook for us again. Um, was that he all he wanted to do, Petros, was talk about character. Amazing. That was it. Yeah, I want to talk about the action. That came later yeah. when we were closer to actually having to build sets and stuff like that. But he just wanted to talk about character. And then regarding the ending of the movie, it was like uh, Ridley Scott uh, telling Callie Curry uh, before Thelma and Louise went into production, telling her, I understand one thing, that the ending will not change. Because <laughs> you can imagine in Thelma and Louise having the two leads die at the end by committing suicide in the Grand Canyon was not exactly a happy ending. Yeah. John, you know, in a much more diminished way, but said to us, he goes, I understand that I do not want to change this ending, which by the way, we had constantly been told to remove I, it from the script that the kid, uh, the, the orphan child of Castor Troy is adopted by the Archer family. So was that what you yeah. thought I was going to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the first thing we walked in, we sat down and it was the same. Yeah, exactly. As Mike said, the first thing he goes, he goes, I just, yeah, I just want you to know that kid, the little boy, we weren't even in the room yet. Like we were like walking down into the room. He goes, I just want to make sure that the little boy is at the end of the movie. Amazing. And we were like, yes, we want that too. Which of course, by the way, they cut and we weren't allowed to wasn't. shoot that. Yeah. So what? What, it's what? in the film, but yeah. we didn't shoot it initially. It was a, the only scene we picked up. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Like, what 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 are some of your highlights from being being on set? Like, obviously, and and I guess another thing I wanted to know was like, did the actors ever want to speak to you guys, or were they kind of doing their thing and didn't like? I, I know there can be like a separation where like they, they don't really want to, not necessarily don't want to speak to you, but it's like they don't want to get like their heads clouded they've got their character so they don't want to go back to the source was there an well the thing is or? this um john woo who is incredibly collaborative and uh -huh. and to us at least should set an example for all other directors uh when there's an original screenplay um by writers who aren't directing the film writer or writers is that you know john puts his trust in the department heads Mm -hmm. He puts his trust in Neil Spizak, the production designer, or or the uh, Ellen Mirajnik, the costume designer. They go do their thing. John viewed us as the head of the script department. Uh -huh. And so he wanted us on set all the time. Um, there were, you know, of course there was ad-libbing in the movie, which was fine with us. But if ever, if the actors had any question about the script, and there were several times, these things came up, John, they, you know, protocol call, uh, required them. Uh, uh, certainly Nick and John Travolta would know what to do. 
they would go to John and then John would simply point at us. And then we would go step aside or go into their trailer and work out the kinks of this or that scene or this line or this word mm -hmm. sometimes. And we'd work it out. It was great. I mean, you know, we've never yeah. had an experience since, but like that. Uh, but uh, at least it yeah, happened it, once. It also go. It also is a, a testament to the idea that uh, it all starts at the top. Like so, whatever energy is at the top is what comes down through. And John Wu, you know, was the best. I mean, he just he was always calm. He was always gentlemanly, soft spoken. He never raised his voice. He wrote, if there was a problem, he would roll with it. The actors loved him. They always had access to him. He always wanted to hear their ideas. Um, so, the, so there was a lot of happiness, uh, especially John Travolta, who had already made a movie with him. So when those guys are happy, everyone's happy. You know, it's like it just filters down. And so the, the set was, I, and again, I say this all the time, I'm sure if the producers were on the call, they would have horror stories about stuff going on behind the scenes. <laughs> but on the set, it was very harmonious. Uh, people got along. Yeah. There didn't seem to be a lot of drama. And and part of that was because uh, I I will uh, I will pick, you know uh, toot our horn a little bit. A lot of that was because the script was very stable. Mm -hmm. There were no rewrites. I mean, there were there were. Tweaks. tweaks and stuff to deal with production issues or a dialogue thing here and there or John wanted to change just how a scene flowed or something like that but it was all matter of fact there was no drama around like there was never a day when Travolta got a scene that he had never seen before yes. you know or anything like that there was nothing like that and, and, and so that really helps the the flow of it all you know also <laughs> there were so many times <laughs> that people didn't exactly know who was who and what was happening. Right. Uh, and so we were the explainers. <laughs> right. Had to defer to you. like so Yeah, is, well, yeah, is, because, is, of course, Nick you know. Sean or Nick Castor right now? Yeah, because, of course, you know, they shoot the movie essentially out, out of sequence. Yeah, yeah. And so, so, for example, they shot all the FBI stuff as a block. So the, the stuff that's from the beginning of the movie is John Travolta as Sean Archer, but the stuff that starts in the halfway of the movie is John Travolta as Nick Cage, but he's wearing the same suits. You know, it's all chopped up over a week or so oh. shooting period. So the individual shots sometimes were confusing, like, who, 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 who am I in this scene, you know? Uh, I think they were probably joking most of the time, but but it, it didn't hurt because to have certainly crew came up to us all the time and said, <laughs> "Is he in this shot? Is he the good guy or the bad guy?" And we would thankfully be able to tell them. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the script supervisor going, like, is, "Is he supposed yeah. to be acting like this right now? Like, or is it like?" What, 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 yeah, she was sharp. The script supervisor. She knew. She, she always knew. knew. She was ahead of us. Amazing. Um, I guess like. Um, it was there like room like yeah john's point was there room for improvisation and obviously like for you guys did you like were you, were you happy to see that like i know like i don't know like certain scenes where sometimes we were happy <laughs> yeah or like yeah because yeah. because i know that like i don't know it feels like nick's delivery of i want to take his face off 
Phil, yeah. Phil's was that on the page or was that was that something that the, kind of the line of dialogue page? was yes, uh-huh. um, and and the interaction, the nature of the interaction was he says that he's hot, he's blasted on drugs, and he says I want to take his face off, and his crew always reacted like what. Um, but it got exploded in that scene into the masterpiece that it is <laughs> that it is now masterpiece of madness. Um, uh, yeah, but you know that... the you know the, uh, uh, Mike. Well, Mike can speak to to uh, when it what didn't work out. But what was fun for us, I will say, is when Travolta and Cage, especially Cage, would ad lib or would like grabbing that little girl's butt in the beginning of the movie, that was Nick in character, being the character. We had him sticking his tongue in her ear or something, licking her cheek or something. So when he would do that... Yeah, which is what Travolta does at the end of the film. But it didn't... Right, exactly. So when Travolta... But so later on, we would say, oh, well, we'd we'd see the rushes and we'd say, oh, he grabbed her ass. Oh, I know. Let's find try to find a place where John Travolta as the bad guy yes. can grab somebody's ass yeah. and Ends so up being his secretary right? ended up being his secretary you know and so we would we were constantly pitching these things and a lot of them ended up in the movie um not all of them but but there were a lot of sort of payoffs that that uh we tried to kind of jerry rig into the film yeah it's almost like uh like uh, callbacks, like in a kind of comedy yeah. set, right? It's like that kind of yeah, like that absolutely nice connective tissue that uh, really, like, I don't know, grounds the audience because that that is a thing for something that is like very high concept film. I've it's so it's so easy to watch and it's so like easy to understand and it's like you do get caught, oh, you, you get you get caught up in it and I, I like the last time I kind of watched it on the big screen, I went to a Nicolas Cage all nighter. Um, oh, fun! So it was uh, the Rock, Conair, Face Off, Drive Angry, and Mandy from nine. <laughs> oh my God! Ending with Mandy. Yeah. How exhausted were you? Uh, genuinely, like I had a feeling as I left that cinema that, like, it almost felt like I had been on a night out, and like I don't know, like I felt like I'd taken drugs at that point. And wow, it's like, that's a that's a commitment that was it's been 12 or 14 hours yeah, tw- of all that right 12 hours i think mandy started at 7 a.m i remember wow i like popped outside for a cigarette break before before that film started and i just thought the sun is up and wow just about- had you seen them all before yeah yeah of course it's, it's, oh okay but like okay watching watching face off uh specifically with like an audience of kind of I mean, people are going to a like a a, a a screening like that. At, yeah, it's a cinema in London called the Prince Charles, which I guess is like the closest we have to like the New Beverly, where it's kind of oh like okay dynamite programming, always doing like fun stuff and always doing. Oh, that's like, great! Uh, but they um, you need a you need a theater like that. Yeah, but like seeing it with people who are like dedicated to the to to, to these <laughs> was films, it crowded. Oh, it was yeah, yeah. It was it was really crowded. Yeah, yeah. People, but like, there were like lines, like 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 we we're mentioning that that face off moment in 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 face off. Everyone kind of like cheering and stuff like that, or like anytime, uh-huh. anytime big moments like the kind of hal- yeah, like that big moment at the beginning where he grabs the ass and he's kind of like singing. <laughs> Everyone was loving it, and it was a kind of like such a great like um, I don't know. 
great experience to have and like it was that thing of like oh, this like this film really does deserve to be seen with like the largest audience you could possibly see it with because it is just like yeah and like it is i don't know back yeah back to my original point of it of, of that thing of just like every, i don't know every time i watch it i kind of pick up on new little things and like yeah like you're saying like those things that you seed and then pay off and stuff like that it's mm-hmm. just so so rewarding to an audience mm-hmm. member it's, 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 well, it's well the ad lib scene where nick and and nick castavetti's uh-huh. and nick cage are repeating the line was we had somebody was backdooring us information from marketing department at paramount that they were thinking of changing the title from face off to doppelganger or some <laughs> something was that right michael yeah yeah and we were very concerned about that uh not necessarily that the title would change but certainly doppelganger was not at the top of our list unless it was only being released in germany and it doesn't and, and it, 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 it that's not the meaning of the word doppelganger no, either no. <laughs> so um so what we so Michael and I took Nick aside, and you know it was the day we were shooting that scene in the loft, and we told Nick that we were worried, and Nick loved the title. We knew that, and so he said, "Don't worry, I'll handle it." <laughs> and then yeah, he put that tonight. scene in. What he said, he said this very ominous thing. After tonight, they won't change the title. We had no idea what he meant. <laughs> and then this happened, and we were like, "Oh, okay, Amazing. thank you, Nick." Amazing. Um, one of the things I wanted to know. I, I, oh, Kate Hardman, Mike, Michael. Yeah, Kate Hardman. She did all the Clint Eastwood movies. And by the way, the scene you where they're don't going, look up. With, what? Yeah, the scene where they're where, where Nick Cage and Nick Cassavetes are going that that went on for like twenty minutes. Like like <laughs> John Woo just let the cameras roll. One, you know, more people came in and to the scene were like, "What did he say? He's gonna take his face off?" Oh, you know, it was, it, it was kind of it was very funny to watch. Spe- yeah, we liked it. Speaking of Nick Cassavetes, was the was the kiss between him and Sasha in the script? Because that if it, like it's it's a it's a is I don't know. Does it? it yeah, it feels like. A, was it your? Was it your intention no. for them to? No, be it was ad. That was that was ad lib. <laughs> that was ad lib. Both, uh, both Nick Cassavetes and Gina Gershon, I think, realized that that there was going to be room to sort of create uh-huh. uh, in this environment. <laughs> um, and uh, John, because of course John loves actors, and John Woo loves it. You know. He just worships them and they worship him. So anyway, so there were stuff like that that would turn up from time to time uh, that we were like, huh? <laughs> Amazing. Well, I'm, I'm cautious of, ta- of, of, of time here, guys. I've, I've, I've kept you for, for, for long enough. But um, I guess as we start to close out, obviously, one of, one of the things I wanted to, to ask you about is obviously there's a, there's a planned sequel for Face Off. Like, was there ever talk about it? in like 97 like 98 was there ever talk for you guys to to write a sequel back then or or like yeah what are your thoughts on this kind of sequel? yeah there certainly there were and michael and i pitched several ideas um one was uh to do then you know basically to take the surgery idea and reboot the movie one was uh involved to doing it with two women 
Mm-hmm. Uh, another involved uh, because Michael and I thought, oh, we we should, and this was both as a feature film and later on as a limited summer series, uh-huh. a ten episode arc, doing uh, uh, upping the surgery aspect one level more and and uh, crossing a racial boundary. Mm-hmm. I think uh, our idea for that was um, that you have a like a young. Pulitzer Prize winning uh, uh, a jour- a, a black journalist who uh, breaks up this uh, this uh, Aryan nation white supremacist cabal and takes them down in a sort of a big Waco like firefight, except there are a couple of survivors and uh, he's kidnapped and wakes up in a motel room and he's got the face of uh, this white supremacist wow. on him and uh and in the guise of a black person, uh, he's going to destroy, I'm going to destroy your family the way you destroyed mine sort of thing. And he has to get his life back. Uh, that didn't fly. We have no idea. We've not read the script for Adam Wingard and his writing partner, uh, what, they're, uh, what they're doing with, um, with the sequel. Uh, we can guess that it involves uh, the demon child that comes to live with them at the end. Uh, and that uh, if he from everything he said in the press, which you've probably read, mm-hmm. he wants Nick and John back in the film. We're not sure how that's going to work and, unless uh, they're only in it for the uh, uh, the prologue or the first act of the film. And then they both die off and something else happens. But yeah. we, we we're not very familiar with it. Yeah. The only, yeah. The, the only thing I could think is like doing like a kind of like, I don't know. Is there like an unexplained like oh the when when they swap the faces it's held on a database so we can like do you know what I mean like the like we could just print print faces now or something yeah like yeah that. well like, we, like, we, what, what, yeah, what, yeah, that, like, but that's <laughs> dark man yes. that's dark man we I look we it, the part of the problem unfortunately for Face Off was as much as we would have loved to seek do a sequel we had a bunch of ideas as Mike said um. It would have it, it it seemed ludicrous enough that they did this once mm-hmm. that now you're going to do a sequel where they swap faces again. Yeah, it it just seemed like I don't know how that's going to work. And then and what was funny was the whole time of production, the, you know, executives would once in a while they would just whine endlessly about how much they were paying John Travolta and Nicolas Cage, <laughs> how much money the movie was, and how much they had to pay them, and all this stuff. And then when the movie came out and was a hit, they said, do you have any sequel ideas? And we said, yeah, but, you know, obviously we can't do Nick and Nick and John. I mean, for one thing, they're too expensive. And another would be ludicrous to, oh, well, then we're not interested. They're not going to have Nick and John. Michael, maybe it's maybe it's maybe they're planning on doing it where look how young Michael Douglas was aged down in in the Marvel movies and Ant-Man yeah. and Infinity yeah. Wars. Um, Maybe they're just planning on make it, you know, 1998. Yeah, possibly. And they're young. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Well, who knows? Sometimes. But, and there's aging. another possibility, which is start off the movie with that ambulance driving away and somebody breaking Nick out of the morgue, and yeah. he's not dead. Yeah, it's uh, it's. I don't know. It's it's, it's fascinating, and I'm um, I don't know. We're skeptical, but. We wish them the best. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope they cook up something fun. Um, 
And they're, I, I suspect they're going to, I'm just guessing, they're going to find it a little trickier than they might think. To kind of... <laughs> well, they have. That <laughs> script has been in development for too long, in my opinion. Yeah. I, like I, I, the year. only thing I would say is that I wish that when Adam is doing interviews, that occasionally he would mention the fact that it, that it was based, whatever he's doing, if it's a sequel, is based on our script. Instead, a few times, he just keeps talking about, this is an original story. And it's like, how can you say that? Yeah, I, I think recently well, he's not very fair. much, he said, he said, he said, it's a, it is very much like a direct sequel. Or like, yeah. you know I mean, it is very much like, yeah, it's, he a made it's not a reboot. It's a sequel. Right, a sequel, it's not a reboot. Guys. Yeah, it's not a reboot. Right. It's a sequel. So I think like, yeah, it's, um, I don't know, like it's, but you it's know, definitely a tricky one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, my the other concern I have is that these both John and Nick are now, Mike. What you've said is the smartest thing I've heard so far, which is they're going to just do, do use de aging potentially, which is becoming much more common because you know these guys are at a certain age. It's going to be a lot of facelift jokes, and you know what I mean. There's like something we like, already like made you, those jokes. <laughs> I, yeah like are you gonna oh now i'm gonna eat you know i'm gonna switch faces but i'm gonna keep it old like i, uh, I don't know <laughs> they're opening up i mean look they're definitely opening up a uh a pandora's much. box of of danger but <laughs> i'll like i've said before i'll be the first in line if it happens amazing <laughs> well well i like to always end these conversations by asking my guests obviously you have a, a horse in the race with this but Apart from Face Off, what is your favorite Nicolas Cage film? I'll start with you, uh, Mike Webb. Oh, start with Kaliri. <laughs> um, that's a that's so hard. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna split it down the middle. It's probably Saving Arizona and Mandy. Oh. Raising Arizona. I'm sorry. Did I say Saving? Yeah, yeah, Raising Arizona and Mandy. I think are my favorite. Off the top well, of my head, uh, Face Off's mine. <laughs> uh, well, he set aside from Face Off. Yeah, that I horse know, is out I know. The race. So now I have to go to second. Uh, man, I, I just I have to say, even though I didn't appreciate it when it first came, when uh, well, I love his performance in Moonstruck, even though he's more of a support. Yeah, and I, uh, I again. Regarding Peggy Sue Got Married, hmm. I watched it again recently, and I have a completely fresh opinion about his kind of strange performance in that film. Yes. Yeah. But it works. And it's like when you look at, at Kathleen Turner's character in that movie, and it was his bizarre performance that I realized why she loved him so much. Uh-huh. Yeah, he was not like anybody else, and you've got Jim Carrey in that film. Yeah, which is kind yeah. of funny because I know that Kathleen Turner like uh, asked Francis Ford Coppola to to sack him to like to like to fire him from the movie to, like, to fire he, Nick. Yeah, is it because of that voice? She said, "Is he going to do that voice for the whole movie?" <laughs> like, like, yeah so like and i guess i don't know i i, I guess fat family wins over at the end of the day but yeah peggy she got married is really i i i kind of I kind, oh I, I i love that I, I, yeah oh and and um kick ass oh god oh my great. god 
Kick ass. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Get into channel Adam West. Like, oh my God. He's, he's great. He and Chloe are, that pairing was amazing. I just, I just love the fact that Nicolas Cage, like, as, as an actor, has basically got to play with kick ass, got to play Batman to some degree. Like, it's very much right. like the kind of mold of that character. Got to voice Spider-Man in uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And yep. even kind of, I, I know it would have been around a similar time to you guys doing Face Off. He he would have been Superman and then got to voice yep. Superman. He had in, the script yeah. on the set. Instead, he ended up in the Croods. <laughs> yeah, which he, did, which he did a very good voice job. He's yeah. done a couple of voices and, and for Brookheimer movies that are good. Yeah. And, and I don't know if you, I don't know if Pig is op- opened in England, I, but. I, um, um, I Yeah, I, I, I got to. I got to see Pig early, like uh, Neon sent me like a screener when that, like, yeah, last year when that was coming He's out. He's amazing in Pig. Amazing, yeah, and I've like... Uh, and I've, it's a completely toned down performance. It is, it, for me, for, for, for like a long, uh, uh, yeah, like a long life Nick Cage fan, it was kind of, for me, it's like, for all these people who have written him off, it's like, look, this is, th- th- like... This guy has always had this in him, and he's he's done it throughout his career. It's like you can go back to 2013; he does a film like Joe. It's like nuanced and stuff. Yeah, like yeah. That. and he, even within like the kind of that, yeah, the 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 beige Volvo trilogy, as people have now called it, with uh, the Rock, Conair, and Face Off. Uh, yeah, it's hey, like, have you so have you seen all his every single one of his movies? I've seen every single one. Yeah. Oh my god, that's incredible! Yeah, yeah. I haven't. So not everyone. So this podcast started off as a total Nick Cage retrospective, like view of his career. And now I've completed all of that. And now I'm looking at the entirety of the Coppola family to, to, to determine. Interesting. Yeah. So, so they've worked in multifacets of, of Hollywood and there's kind of interesting aspects where people marry into the family and then get into the industry or their careers are kind of, yeah. I, I always use Spike Jones for instance. It's like he kind of marries Sophia Coppola and then his career kind of goes off in a way. And I'm not saying it's a direct influence of that, but I know right. there is a thing of Francis was offered the script for being John Malkovich and said, I know a guy who would be perfect for this. And is that I, right? Oh, yeah. that's awesome. I didn't know that. I can. I, can, I didn't know that. I can. Only... I saw a Ro- Roman Coppola movie. It's actually I just saw it, but it's like twenty years old. Called CQ. Have you heard of that? I have. It's it's on my list to talk about. Oh my point. gosh! I you know what? It it's not like the perfect movie by any means, but I loved it. It it was a, it was an homage to like, um. I don't know, fringe is the wrong word, but it's basically a mix of David Holtzman's Diary, which is a classic film from the 60s, and Barbarella. Amazing. And they, they they were able to kind of make this sort of hybrid of, um, of, of these kind of like that era of filmmaking, like late 60s, Amazing. independent Europe kind of filmmaking. I, I, I thought it was great. I loved it. I thought it was really well done. And they spent a fortune. I was shocked. I mean, it looks fantastic. There's all these sci Barbarella kind of sci-fi sets and stop motion stuff. And it's about making a movie. And uh, apparently they spent like 7 million bucks on it, which is insane <laughs> because it didn't make close to that. But it, because of the Coppola name, they were able to uh, yeah, okay. actually make it properly. And uh, I, I loved it. I thought it was great. 
Amazing. Anyway, for what it's worth. Well, well, yeah. What what are you like as as we leave this conversation? What what are you guys up to now? Like, what, what, mm -hmm. where, where 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 do we see you now? Well, any projects uh, on the horizon for you? Mike, you want to start or? Got a couple things I can't really talk about, yeah, it's but I'm very excited about. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Uh, um, but it's uh, one is a feature, amazing, and it uh, involves a uh, contemporary. I guess you could. It involves uh, bringing Mozart into the this century in amazing. a weird way. Amazing. It's mm -hmm. sort of a horror thriller. Um, it's not really saw it. I get, there are some supernatural elements to it. And another thing is, uh, uh, a TV pilot that I'm working on Amazing. that's, uh, based on a true story set in the late 19th century. Amazing. And what about yourself, yeah. Michael? And then Michael and I are both, or Michael's the showrunner. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a comic book adaptation that, uh, um, that I'm attached to with that Michael brought me into. Uh, with Jeff Most, um, that is based on a uh, a uh, comic book, graphic novel that uh, uh, I think the director's British, right? Yeah, yeah, it's called Razor. Um, it's like the it's like it, it's like the a, in a way a companion piece to the Crow, kind Amazing. of. It's been around that long, but um, my Jeff Most, the who who hired brought us on. Um, own the rights to the crow and and to this show so he's finally getting it he's come close to making it as a movie for 30 years um but now it's sort of like television as you know has devoured yes. uh the <laughs> art industry so it's now a tv show and then i have a show that he and i Je jeff most and i worked on that's going to be on the cw this fall with brendan frazier Amazing. And Tom Welling called professionals. So amazing! I'm 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 I'm, I'm glad to see the the Renaissance as as as. Oh yeah, we got him first. The show was shot three years ago, and uh, uh, it's had a crazy. Long? To 2019, yeah. Oh, yeah. Our whole show it's an action show, and the whole thing is about staving off a pandemic, <laughs> a worldwide pandemic, and it and we shot it in 2019, and unfortunately we're just too a little too prescient pardon me so yes. but we'll see it's coming out this fall we'll amazing well it's see been, if there's an audience it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you guys and yeah yeah thank you, Petrus. congratulations you for on your such, interest. such a great film that is kind of uh, i think it will definitely it's well it's lasted 25 years i think people will be talking about any no matter which way the kind of sequel goes if anything it will bring more people's eyes onto the film that you guys wrote and that's always a good thing right that's our yeah. bottom line hope <laughs> yeah that's our bottom line hope i i'm still mad that criterion hasn't put out an edition i don't know if that's yeah lack of interest on their part or if the paramount is not on the ball about it but my god if they have marriage story <laughs> on criterion <laughs> They should have fucking face off. That's my view. <laughs> I think. I, I think. I think. Yeah. The the rock. That's is in hilarious, there. Michael. The rock is Thanks. in there. Armageddon's in there. If Michael yeah, Bay can yeah. have two, John Woo can yeah. have one. I'll say that. I'll say that. Well, someone, somebody, and John Woo has. A, I think. I think there's a cup. Maybe one or two of John's movies on there. But yeah, I mean, come on, it's time. Let's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let, let 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 let's give face off the shine and let's let let Simon West have a bit of a uh, bit of action as well and get Con Air in there as well. And, uh, Con Air, <laughs> I, I'm all for Con Air. Leave Laura Croft, not so much. But, uh, that's a discussion for another day. 
Okay. Yeah, worked on that. Amazing. Well, guys, thank you again so much for coming and joining me. Thanks, Petros. Thanks, uh, Petros. I'm glad we finally happened. Yes. Yeah, sorry about yesterday, guys. It was a last-minute thing, but I appreciate you rolling with it. No worries. And I know it's probably late there, Petros, so thanks for uh, thanks for all your time. No worries. Yeah, right. it, it felt like the delays. It felt perfect because there were so many delays with this that it was like, because obviously I kind of knew the storied history with the film. It was like, oh, there's like a kind of poetic irony to it all. <laughs> that's the, true the, the, the that's interview true. is taking its time and kind of scheduled well dates and it kind of gets pushed back and i was like oh let's roll with this and there we have it guys a massive thank you again to Mike and Michael for this fantastic conversation. I'm sure you will agree. And a massive thank you to you guys for listening. Uh, obviously, uh, a podcast is nothing without those people listening. I, I still can't believe it's been 25 years since uh, Face Off came out. And uh, there's still so many, so many amazing stories. I, I, I am one day going to write that beige volvo trilogy book that i've that I've, that I've kind of been scrambling about in my head for so long because i feel like those three films would um be a great kind of delve in talking to all the people involved and finding out kind of that that magical trio in nicholas cage's career would be fantastic to kind of um get under the hood of and really dissect it all and get get all these stories out of people is yeah just from Mike and Michael there's, there's, there's just almost a book in itself in just the stories I imagine those guys had and I could have talked to them for, for, for many more hours I was, I, was, I was cautious about time just because sometimes I'm, I'm a little bit yeah I'm a little bit socially awkward and I, I do I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I believe that people's time is so precious and I'm always I'm always blown away by the fact that people like dedicate their time to uh yeah to come in and speak into me I'm, I'm i'm blown away by the fact that people dedicate some of their time listening to this podcast so the fact that these creatives and um people in the film industry and especially these nicholas well just any facet of it or want to come and speak about the the, the projects they've worked on it's all, all, especially with me it always always blows my mind so yeah a massive thank you to, again to those guys and, and to you for listening because it is it always does mean the world um so yeah if if if, if you want to carry on the conversation if there's kind of scenes in um face off is the stuff that was said in this conversation that uh, particularly spoke to you or, or or you found interesting something that you didn't know before don't hesitate to get in touch which you can do so on all the social media platforms so that is twitter instagram facebook letterbox and tiktok all at cajun pod or if you want to be a bit more personal you want you got something to say that you don't want to blast out to the world you can always drop me an email which is caged in pod at gmail.com as for next week on the podcast we'll be chugging along on the copla connections train and talking about the jason schwartzman film oh, i say jason schwartzman jason schwartzman happens to be in it it's very much a um nancy myers is that right it's very much a nora efron um film starring will ferrell and nicole kidman that jason schwartzman happens 
to be in, and that film is Bewitched. And I am joined by fellow Breadcrumbs Collective alumni, um, Ariane Andapoutri, to discuss that film. And it was a lot of fun. So be sure to uh, stick around, stick around with the podcast next week for that one. And uh, as ever, if you enjoyed this podcast, would like to give me some money. It's always nice, isn't it? I know, I know, I know. I know sometimes it's not always possible, but uh, yeah, if you'd like to um, donate some money to the podcast, uh, you can do so by heading over to patreon.com forward slash caged in pod, where you get access to the movie brat bros tier. Uh, for as little as £2.50 or $3 a month. And you can uh, listen to season one at the moment where we're deep diving into the career of Brian De Palma. And it's a lot of fun. And soon coming to the £5 tier will be the Caged In Book Club, where for, yeah, as I said, £5 each week, I will be reading like two chapters and kind of... Uh, annotating them audibly uh, uh, a Nicolas Cage movie novelization so we'll be kicking off very soon with the Ghost Rider movie novelization and then kind of rattling through I think eventually we'll get to the face-off one we'll get to the Conair one we'll get to the Wind Talkers one and we'll get to the Snake Eyes one all in due time also hitting the main feed on the podcast very soon will be my weekly deep dives into the offer the new paramount plus mini series looking at the making of the godfather which obviously has a very very large coppola connection so um yeah i will be talking to uh, will chich as my regular co-host for that series where each week we'll eat pasta drink wine and discuss the offer so be sure to check that out those episodes will be dropping on fridays from next week as ever if you enjoyed this episode or if you've enjoyed any episodes of the podcast please be sure to head on over to apple podcast spotify or wherever you're listening to this right now and leave a lovely five star rating and review remember in your review to always let me know what does bill murray say to scarlett johansson at the end of lost in translation i always want to know or just let me know what's your favorite nicholas cage film just let me know something just let me say hey you're doing a good job over there sometimes my like uh sometimes my self-confidence needs that little boost so yeah you can you can do that for free you can you can give you can make you can make my day for free how, like what what how, what a, what a, what, a, what an offer you can't refuse right there right uh yeah just make me feel better about myself please so as ever guys i've been petros pat syllabus i've been caged in you've been amazing catch you next time planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack. 
for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Drooptown Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.